Hello and welcome to Science Shambles. Producer Trent here. On this episode, Helen Chesky chats to Kit Chapman about how the science and engineering used in motorsport, particularly in uh, Formula One, is used in the wider world in healthcare, in tackling COVID, in climate and energy and fluid dynamics and everything else. And also they talk about the you know, is this flow the right way? Shouldn't we be investing more in healthcare and having that trickle through to motorsport and stuff? So it's a great conversation. We hope you enjoy it. It's all covered as well in Kit's new book, Racing Green, which is out now. Before we get to the episode, thank you very much to our Patreon supporters. Patreon.com slash Cosmic Shambles is where you can go to subscribe and support the podcast and the network and all the other stuff we do and you'll get lots of other goodies uh, for signing up as well. Remember that the nine lessons, the rescheduled nine lessons shows that we had to postpone at Christmas are coming back this April Easter weekend. They are resurrected on the Easter weekend, April 16 and 17. Robin will be hosting. Helen will be there. Lucy Green, Matt Parker, Chris Lintop, Miranda Lowe, Mark Richards, Jim Bob, loads of other people as well. Tickets for that are on sale now at cosmicshambles.com slash nine lessons and you can also go to our youtube channel and watch this episode if you'd like it's on our science shambles playlist on our youtube channel as well now on to the episode here is helen and kit Now, our guest today is kit chapman who is a journalist and science historian and you may have read his uh, and you may have read his 2019 book called Super Heavy, which was about the distant reaches of the periodic table. But today we're discussing uh, a book that is only he's just written, it's only just come out, and it's called Racing Green, all about the engineering involved in motorsport and the applications that it can have beyond the racetrack. So hello, Kit, how are you? I'm very well, thanks. Helen, how are you? Uh, I'm I'm doing very well. I have a my head is ever so slightly in evolutionary biology from the a podcast I recorded an hour ago. <laughs> but so you know, okay. if we start discussing the genitalia of the female hyena do forgive me but <laughs> I, will, I will always discuss the genitalia of the female hyena whenever it's it comes a, up it's a topic worth finding out about anyway um so so this book um this is now i have to i have to be honest up front here which is that i i do work in an engineering faculty i'm not really a motorsports fan and i look at motorsports kind of like going to the zoo in a way i'm like oh look at that thing over there um isn't it hasn't it got funny ears right it's that's sort of my you know so it's it's not that I am not sympathetic to the engineering involved but I I I do find it terribly noisy so but motorsports it sounds like you were a proper motorsports fan so how is that true have you always been a motorsports fan yeah I, I grew up with it and one of the sort of defining moments in my childhood is the death of Ayrton Senna who was obviously a, a very famous Formula One even if you even I've fan. heard of him. Yeah. You've heard of Ayrton Senna. <laughs> um, and he died when I was just a kid. I was, I was growing up in Hong Kong. And I remember very distinctly um, coming down that morning. And my mum was in tears making breakfast. And I said, you know, what's wrong? And she said, Ayrton Senna died. Um, she, he was in a crash last night and, and he died. Um, because obviously the race was going on in Europe. And I, it, I didn't sort of twig what that meant. I just kind of nodded and went, okay. And then I went to school and that day I sort of paused for a moment. I thought, wait a minute, someone's died. Someone died for my entertainment driving around a track. Um, and that was one of those moments that I really started sort of actually reflecting on motorsport. It wasn't just entertainment anymore. 
why are we doing this? And during my teens, uh, I started looking to the R&D of motorsport and found that there was just this whole wealth. But I am not smart enough to be an engineer. I, I am not allowed anywhere near a race car in terms of, in fact, I tried to sit in one and they were like, no, you don't get to sit in our race cars. So I, I'm not allowed near them, but um, I've admired them from afar. And, and as I learned more about chemistry and physics and, um, and history of science, I've discovered so many things that have spiraled out from racing. And I just thought that was an ideal book subject. And, and so and is that is that how the book came about then or did you have a more specific uh, entry because i mean you've obviously written about lots of topics right this is this 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 subject is a long way from chemistry so you must have fairly broad interests here yeah i've got i mean i've got a phd in the history of nuclear physics it's it's very very different from from racing so i was i'm a chunky monkey i'm a fat guy and i was trying to lose a bit of weight and I couldn't get to the gym one day. My personal trainer who I was working with said, well, I've got someone, a mutual friend. He's got a gym at his house. Why don't we meet there? And so we went over there and it was a Le Mans race driver called Martin Short. And on his driveway was a supercar and David Brabham, who was an ex-Formula One driver. Um, and we got talking about the science of motorsport. Obviously, I, I'm sort of, you know, a, a pig in poop, as it were. Uh, and they say, would you like to see the cars? They took me around a tour of some of the most incredible machines. I mean, if you're a petrol head, I saw a Mosler Consulia, which is just, it's, it's as rare as hen's teeth. And we started talking about the science. And I realized that there isn't just the story of the science here. There's also the, start, the stories of the personalities and the engineering involved. And there's just these incredible feats to, that are done. And so I thought it was an ideal subject for a book. And, and that's kind of where I, I began. And it led me around the world, essentially, to discover this. I do have I mean uh, as I said that although watching cars you know go around in circles is not really my thing I do <laughs> appreciate I think the, I do think the engineering is um is very creative you know it's, it's interesting to see in a way the thing that I, I will credit motorsports with is is an example of what happens if you really pay your engineers properly give them creative time set them a clear task and just wind them up and let them go um, Absolutely. It, it is the fastest R&D lab in the world. And there are people who go and design, you know, jet aircraft who work for McLaren. And the reason they work for McLaren is one, yes, they are well paid. Absolutely. But the second thing is that if you design a jet aircraft, you will see it fly maybe once in your lifetime because of the, the incredible development lengths that those take. If you're working for Mercedes, you see a new thing added every week. And so you can actually let your creativity fly. You can try new things. If they don't work, you can pivot and go into other areas. Um, if you're interested in computational fluid dynamics, you can go into there. You can go into aerodynamics. You can go into engineering. There are so many different areas. And speaking to some of the student teams, I went over to the Ohio State University, and they actually had their students build the world's fastest electric race car. Um, it's, it's, it actually rests on the Bonneville Salt Flats, 341 miles an hour in an electric vehicle, which is astonishing. And the aerodynamics were designed by a student called Kim Stevens, and she went over to work in Mercedes, and she is now Lewis Hamilton's personal aerodynamicist. So to see the, <laughs> Now, how the many progress, of us can say we've got our own personal aerodynamicist? <laughs> I, I think if you're Lewis Hamilton, you've got your personal a lot of things, to be honest. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so... Now, the book is full of examples. It's actually, although a lot of it is about motorsports engineering, you, you, you sort of set the, the name Racing Green is not, you know, you are, you are making your thesis here is that motorsports is not just a sport in a way that it contributes to other things. And so 
before we get to some of the details, and there, there's a lot of fascinating details here, I have to ask you the hard question, which is that if you want great engineers doing healthcare science, why do you not just fund them to do the healthcare science instead of training them in an, what is both an expensive and a lethal sport, which is quite clear from the book, we'll come to some of that, why, why does motorsports need to get involved? Why not just give that money to the healthcare engineers and say, well, off you go, design the thing you actually need to design? Well, in a perfect world, you would. But I mean, there are a couple of answers to that. One is that um, necessity is the mother of invention. Just telling someone go and design something is very, very difficult. They actually need a reason and a purpose to, to, to move forward. And sport gives you that because it gives you that constant challenge. Uh, I was speaking to one of the team and they said that most innovations occur during sport and war. And out of those two, I know which one I prefer. I would much rather innovations in sport. Um, the other aspect is, as you mentioned, funding and things like that. We aren't funding them at the moment. It's very, very difficult to get funding. And, and there's a huge battle there. So you need some kind of impetus, particularly when you're looking at applied science. So I think personally that there isn't enough funding for fundamental science at university level. And that's really what we need to be looking at, because fundamental science gives you the applications in 20 or 30 years. But we also need that applied science. We need someone to be able to do it. And why not motorsport? Why not have competition? Why not drive those engineers and, and encourage them to look at things in new ways and find gaps in the rules and see what they can do? Well, let's pick up on some of the examples. Um, and there are, I mean, I, 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 it is, this is nothing to do with my, you know, general feeling about motorsport, but there is a lot of death in this book. I mean, I think, I think it's very hard. I don't think anyone could read it and not notice that. But, but you sort of, a lot of that is you weave that in with the history of motorsport. So just take us through why the history of motorsport is interesting in this regard and why fewer people die now than perhaps 50 years ago. So you're absolutely right in that there, there is a lot of death. Um, and that's because in, in part there was, there was always a, a macho culture, I think, in a lot of motorsport, particularly in NASCAR we see. But you also saw it in Formula One as well. Um, it, was, it was predominantly male-driven, um, not always on the engineering side, but there have been, what, two drivers in Formula One that are women, unfortunately. We need to improve that. Um, and so there was this culture of, of almost sort of, I know what I'm doing, I trust myself, let's go. And that's gradually moved away from that. We have the situations where people weren't wearing seatbelts because they felt that seatbelts were more dangerous than not wearing them. They could get out of the car if they didn't have a seatbelt, for example. They were hoping they would be thrown clear. So when we look at Jackie Stewart's era, for example, Jackie Stewart was three-time world champion. He was dedicated to improving uh, safety. He had a, a and just which year, which year was this? Uh, so he was in the 60s and 70s, um, 1960s. And... Um, in, uh, in Spa, he was going around the track and he crashed off. He, his car burst into flames because they used to have the petrol tank right next to the driver. He couldn't get the steering, he couldn't get his legs out because the steering wheel had trapped him. Uh, he was pulled out by two, two guys. And um, from then on, he always carried a, a spanner in his pocket, essentially, so that he could get the, screw, the, you know, get the steering wheel off if he had to. When people were taken to hospital, there are many cases where people were driven to the wrong hospital or people that were following the ambulance would arrive first because the ambulance driver got lost. When we introduced, um, say, the first safety person was introduced in the late 70s. Um, Bernie Eccleston actually drove up and found a guy called Sid Watkins, who was a professor at, um, sorry, doctor, consultant at uh, the London Hospital. And Sid was going around looking at tracks going, why, who has the keys to the first aid cabinet? Nobody knew. 
At one point, the, the medical team on station included a dietitian. What's a dietitian going to do if someone's in a car crash? Um, so no one was really thinking this through. And gradually changes were made. Safety was increased. We increased seatbelts, for example. We started looking at, at ways that we could improve them on track. We looked at the barriers. But we had this death of earth and Senna. And that's the moment that really shook everyone. They realised if someone like Erd and Senna, who is the Because he was of, almost untouchable. The, he, was almost, he was God in the motor racing world. He, he was God in the motor racing world. And he died the same weekend as, as another racing driver, Roland Ratzenberger. And those two deaths together, along with some very severe injuries to uh, Ruben Barrichello the same, same uh, weekend at San Marino in 1994, just shook F1. And they suddenly realised they had to take it seriously. And in 1999, the same thing was happening with NASCAR because you had a driver called Dale Earnhardt who had the same reputation. Dale Earnhardt was God as far as, as NASCAR fans were concerned. And so if the man in black dies of what well, was essentially a basal bacillar neck fracture, um, then you really need to have a look at things. And so they started introducing things like the hands device, which is essentially a harness that tethers to the helmet. And so you can't hyperextend the neck. Improving so we should just perhaps pick apart some of these things because I think yeah, that sure. you know for those it's it's um it is frightening to watch motorsports because of the forces but that also mm -hmm. means that when things stop there are gigantic yes. accelerations so we're, so we're talking gigantic deceleration essentially um so we're looking at uh, uh you know 80 g's so the, uh, the most recent crash was Roman Grosjean in in 2020 I think people saw that around the world the car burst into flames um, he decelerated at 80 Gs, which 80 times gravity, essentially. And when you think about NASA and their, and their centrifuge that whizzes around, that goes up to about 20. So we're talking incredible forces, yeah. And, and so the, the device, the hands device you were describing, is basically a sort of um, a frame almost that sits around the upper body and attaches to the helmet so that the, the, he the, the spine can't get misaligned. In that exactly. gigantic deceleration. That is exactly what it is. It is a, is a sort of a, a yoke almost and, and a tether to the helmet so that you cannot extend the spine. And of course, they're also strapped in with uh, with five-point harnesses. Some people use six-point harnesses as well so that the body can't sort of slip down. We had cases where another world champion, Jochen Rindt, um, in, uh, in the 1970s, actually did what's called submarining. So when he was in a crash, he actually went underneath the seatbelt and he was garroted by his own seatbelt. Um, so we prevent that now. You see, the thing that I find very hard, so my, I should put my sister watches motorsports. She's a big Formula One fan. She she follows all of this. So, um, but I, I find that I, my sort of reaction is, well, who was letting them do that in the first place? What kind of idiot gets in a car if there's a risk that your own seatbelt is going to garrote you? I actually thought it was very interesting. It was almost interesting about the, from a sort of human psychology point of view that, that the drive to get in the car and make it go fast completely outweighed any, any safety considerations whatsoever. But then the engineers could solve these problems once they were presented to them, which is the point. Yeah, I mean, I think of a Formula One team not just as the drivers, and obviously the drivers are a key part of it, but it's, it's hundreds of engineers that we're looking at, and they're the ones that are making these real innovations. And you're right, there is this case of bravado. But to give you a, a great example, the person who designed the first ever purpose-built race car, the car that was designed to go and actually go fast, was a guy called Camille Giannazzi, and he did it to break the world land speed record. It had only just been set. Um, this is in the late 19th century. And later on in his life, he was, um, he was on, a on a hunt um, and he crouched down in a bush and started making animal noises to prank his friends. 
And of course, one of them turned around and, and shot him and, and Jinatsi died. So that kind of gives you the mentality. He's not thinking about safety at this point. He's thinking about victory and something that's great. And it, it takes a special kind of person, a special kind of drive, really, to succeed at elite sports in any kind of sport. Um, and of course, in most racing, that means danger because there is inherent risk there. Well, well, you do set out, I mean, we should be clear here that you do set out as the book goes on that the safety proceed. Now, now, once they got around to it, they were perfectly capable of dealing with some of these problems. So now, now there are fewer uh, accidents. But I wanted to come on to some of the um, specific examples, because I think that one of the points that you make is that um, once you've got trained engineers, they don't just have to do the thing that you pointed them at to start with. And I have to declare an interest <laughs> they won't here because as well. <laughs> um, my, I, I'm at University College London. My academic department is the Department of Mechanical Engineering. I'm a physicist doing oceanography in the engineering department. It, it, it makes some sense sometimes. Anyway, this is my department. And, and you actually talked to two of my colleagues who um, led this project during COVID to help with healthcare during um the pandemic just describe what that what like why why were the why are the formula one engineers involved in all of this so this is this is one of my favorite stories in the book and it starts really with the 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 beginning of the pandemic in london so in march 2020 we're about to have the first wave it's about a month away and i'm sure you remember the time in 2020 everyone was nervous no one was quite sure what was going to happen and the uk was in trouble because we didn't have enough ventilators and the government uh, started doing this ventilator challenge. And one of the people approached in UCL was in the department. And they approached your colleague, Rebecca Shipton. And Rebecca is a fantastic um, engineer in terms of medical devices. And she said, this isn't actually the best solution. Because once a patient's on a ventilator, they are on a ventilator for a month. And they've got a tube down their throat. It's not very nice. Um, they have to have all of their needs managed. That includes feeding. That includes dealing with you know, poop and things like that. They need a dedicated trained nurse to operate the ventilator. What else can we do? And so she had a meeting on the 17th of March, 2020, with um, uh, Melvin Singer, who is at uh, UCL Hospitals, and Tim Baker, who is another one of your colleagues. And Tim is ex-motorsport, including Formula One. And so he had the contacts in engineering. He went, if I show some kind of basic device, and, and they found this device called a CPAP machine, continuous positive airway pressure, people might know it for a snoring aid, essentially. But that will actually help a patient breathe. And it worked very well in Italy and China, which were a little bit ahead of us in terms of when the pandemic hit. And so they had this very basic valve system. And Tim went, well, why, why don't I show that to my colleagues at Formula One? I'm sure they could manufacture it. They contacted Mercedes-AMG high-performance powertrains who build the engines for Formula One. A guy called Ben Hodgkinson, he passed them on to the boss. And the boss said, do not hesitate to call upon the full might of what we can do. And three engineers appeared within an hour at UCL. They didn't have a change of clothes. Eventually, they would walk around in these pink, awful T-shirts that says Ventura with tropical uh, pictures on them. And, and it should, this is why this this thing, this project you described, became known as the Ventura Project. It's gone. Exactly. That name has gone around the world, and it's because of those pink T-shirts. It's because of those pink T-shirts. UCL Ventura uh, became the project. Uh, 26 hours after arriving um, in London, they had a, a working prototype. Three days later, it was in, in hospitals. And they already had the MHRA, the Medicine Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, who govern medical devices in the UK. They were already being consulted. And so within 12 days of um, Rebecca Shipley, Tim Baker and, and, and Singer meeting, 
they had approval for not one device, but a second iteration as well that was specifically designed to help patients with COVID. So you could actually have you know, contained oxygen and you weren't leaking out anywhere and it wasn't going to affect anybody else. 30 days after that initial meeting, Mercedes, with the help of other people, I mean, government agencies were involved. There were other companies that were brought in as well. They had 10,000 CPAP machines produced. So to go from never having seen a medical device before to producing 10,000 of them perfectly to up to the specs, which are incredibly rigorous in the UK, is a fantastic feat. And of course, that helped ease the, uh, the first wave in London. And I think I mean, one important point to make here, I think, is is the point of collaboration because it wasn't it wasn't just that it was Mercedes engineers. Oh, no. It was the point that um, UCL had the healthcare contacts, it had access to the doctors, it had the mech space where they could build things and make things and prototype oh, no, the things. Mech, the mech space is badass. I mean, you've got three D printers, <laughs> you've got all kinds of stuff. Yeah, this is this is not just Formula One working independently. Uh, this is bringing everything together, and we also saw that with the Ventilator Challenge. So. The Formula One teams, as part of what's called Project Pit Lane, also got involved with making ventilators for a bit later on. And McLaren was sort of liaising with that. They were organizing parts. They were actually manufacturing parts. They ended up making, uh, you know, I can't remember how many exactly, but it was tens of thousands of parts and not a single one had a fault. But that also combined with several other companies who were working on the project as well. So this isn't engineers working in isolation. It's working as part of a collaboration but it really goes to show just just the talent that engineers have in the UK. And I guess also they they there was no racing, so they didn't have anything else to do. They were sitting twiddling their thumbs. Um, uh, yeah, there there is a, there is an element of that, and it sort of gave them something to do. But when you speak to them and when you you listen to their stories, they won the constructors' championship that year. They won the drivers' championship with Lewis Hamilton. The thing they care most about is the fact that they helped save lives. That was the biggest thing that they've ever done, and, and they're incredibly proud of it. It, it is. I, I encourage people to who are interested look look up the UCL Ventura project, and you know, there the, it is an amazing story, and it's still going because it's all open source, and people around the world can use it. So let's let's move on to some of the other things that um, sort of have reach out into the rest of the world a little bit more, and one of those is um, simulations. So drivers going back to Formula One, you know, cars are expensive practicing is expensive and and you talk about the sort of combination engineering which is taking all of those practical things but then building it into a computer simulation yeah. and and how has how has motorsport helped that develop well there are several there, there are two different strands to that really the first is that back in the late 90s um, there were no real simulators for drivers in formula one and mercedes sorry mclaren decided to tackle that uh, it was led by a woman called Caroline Hargrove, incredibly talented engineer. And she basically took on the took on the big boys. And she said to Adrian Newey, who is an incredibly famous designer, you know, he didn't think it was going to work. She was like, I'm going to do this. And she designed a, a simulator for racers to go around the track and basically see if it worked. Um, and they invented a new track in 2005 in Turkey. And the McLaren drivers obviously were driving around it in their simulators. David Coulthard used to joke that his graphics were better on his Xbox. Um, but they tried it and sure enough, the McLaren drivers absolutely dominated during practice. They were seconds faster than everyone else because they knew the track. And Hargrove has taken this idea and she's gone on now to build what's essentially called digital twins. So she can create a virtual Helen and then we can do all kinds of different healthcare uh, related things. Maybe we change your diet and see what happens and we can simulate what happens to your body. 
And that means that we can use that information, that data, to actually you know, make sure you've got the right lifestyle, adjust, lifestyle adjustments that will benefit you in the long term. So that's one aspect. The so we're talking about the human, a simulation of the human body. We're yeah. talking, yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the best example, that, uh, one that Caroline gives, is in, um, in Apollo 13. So you, you've got them orbiting the moon. They need to get back to Earth. They you know, think Houston would have a problem. Something's gone wrong. And they actually build an Apollo 13, or they, uh, they've got one down in, in NASA. They get Gary Sinise in there, and he's got the stuff, and he tries to work out what the solution is. We're doing that with a human body, essentially. We're doing a virtual computer person and, and then playing around. So that's one aspect. The other aspect that's really interesting is computational fluid dynamics. Um, so air and liquids are both fluids and how they flow is really interesting. And of course, when we're talking about Formula One, aerodynamics is so important because they gain seconds around a track. And that's huge in Formula One terms. You've only got to look at what's happening this season with Mercedes and their, their very interesting aerodynamic choices. Anyway, so CFD is basically computerizing that. And taking that technology, uh, a company called Worth has been looking at whether or not we could actually use it in other applications. So we could compute a model, for example, the city of Chicago and work how air flows around skyscrapers. And then we can design baffles so that we can prevent uh, wash, essentially the wind coming down there and knocking people off their feet. We can design better cities, uh, more energy efficient cities. They're actually buildings that cool themselves. We've seen that in Apple's headquarters in Cupertino. They worked with Formula One teams to actually improve the airflow so that they didn't have to use air conditioning. They could cut down on that. And we use it every day in the supermarket. If you've gone today to the supermarket and you've gone to a freezer and you've put your arm in, you've picked out your lunch or something like that, those freezers actually have uh, air blades on them. Some of them designed by Worth, some of them designed by Williams uh, Racing, who are currently in Formula One. And they curb the, the cold air back into the freezer. And of course, that means that you're reducing the energy output of that fridge because you're not trying to cool more air. That cuts down your carbon footprint. It cuts down your energy bills. It improves the quality of life because you're not getting cold feet. So something as simple as, as a supermarket freezer, it may not sound like a lot. But if you think about how many supermarket freezers there are in a supermarket and how many supermarkets there are in the UK, suddenly we're making a huge impact and a huge dent in CO2 emissions. So it sounds for this, you know, in the course of researching this book, um, I don't know if some of it was before the pandemic, but you definitely got about it. You got to go and see, see <laughs> things and, and look at things and try to, try to sit in cars. What were, the, what were the bits of engineering that really stuck out that you actually saw in person? What, what are the things that you can appreciate in real life that perhaps you don't if you see them on a the screen or you read about them? I mean, when you get to get the privilege of walking down the pit lane and you actually, the one thing that I think people assume in a pit lane because they, they watch F1 on TV and things like that is that it's noisy. It's not. It's, it's almost balletic in the way that everything is organized. It's, it's you know, as clean as possible. There's no sort of extra movements. So it's just that the precision that teams work. And of course, that makes sense when you realize that they can do a pit stop in 1.82 seconds. They can change four tires and let the car get off. I mean, that's just astonishing. In terms of the actual engineering I saw, I had a real glimpse into um, Extreme E uh, when they were actually building the car. And the, the car's panels, the car's sides, uh, it's an electric engine, which is incredible in itself. The fact that we can take electric engines into the desert, into the tundra, into Greenland they were planning to do and things like that. But the car itself is built out of flax fibers. 
So rather than use carbon fiber, we're actually using plant-based materials and it's just reinforced using designs taken from a leaf. They've used the same structures to actually build a bridge in the Netherlands. So the fact that we're now looking at biomaterials, which are obviously reduced carbon footprint, have greater recyclability than carbon fiber, things like that. Carbon fiber is incredibly polluting to actually make, you know, just, just out of the sheer uh, carbon footprint it creates. So all those sort of innovations that we're going to see in our lives, and it goes back to something that we've been using for, you know, time immemorial, which is hemp. That, that's the sort of thing that amazes me, how we're actually looking back and we're taking designs. The same thing happens with uh, the flywheel. So Williams used flywheels for their KERS device, kinetic energy recovery system from their brakes. Now, they, they ended up not actually using it in Formula One because they needed to increase their fuel tank. But that device was later moved into London buses to essentially store energy from the brakes. And so you've got regenerative braking and you can use that to power other things. That design, the flywheel, dates back to ancient Egypt. You know, that's pot makers in Babylonian times. So the fact that we're using all of these technologies from the past, I think, is the thing that really was just incredible to me. But you're right, I, I got to travel the world. I ended up, um, I was actually off the coast of Ecuador uh, when I was sort of sent back to the UK because of COVID pandemic. But I got to sail down the Amazon. Um, I went to have rubber plantations. And that, again, is something that really excited me because I always thought rubber came from the rubber tree in Brazil. I didn't realize the, um, well, there's a terrible history involved where the British basically stole the seeds and, um, and that's why we now have rubber industry in Southeast Asia, but we won't go there. Um, what I didn't realize is that already we're looking at alternative sources for rubber. And that includes building, making tires out of dandelions. So Continental are currently making tires using dandelion rubber from the, the Russian dandelion. So perhaps just say why, you know, why we'd need different rubber, different sources hmm. of rubber. So the big problem, obviously, is, um, well, there are a couple of problems. The first is that as the industry was basically taken from a couple of seeds and transplanted over to Southeast Asia, all the trees are clones. They're identical. And so if one gets a leaf blight, all of them get the leaf blight. Which is and, amazing, actually, all by itself, just from the point of view of tyres, because what you're saying is that the rubber in every tyre we see, I mean, you know, within reason and supply chains yes, and all it, that, it, it, has come from rubber, a clone of the same yeah. plant. Almost certainly. So the natural rubber in a tyre, and then most of the tyres have got a lot of synthetic rubber in them as well, but the natural rubber all comes from these clones that were taken by a guy called Henry Rick Wickham, and he was a biopirate, and he nicked them from Santorem in Brazil in the, uh, in the late 19th century. Um, I mean, there's, there's so many little stories of rubber. There was obviously the situation in the Bel Belgian Congo, which is horrific. It was a, actually a genocide involved there um, with the Belgians trying to get rubber. We had Henry Ford trying to build his own plants in the Amazon, a place called Fordlandia, where there was a rebellion over hamburgers because no one wanted to eat American food. Um, and the, the workers also had a problem when he banned football, which is just something you don't want to do in Brazil. It shows a lack of cultural sensitivity, I feel. <laughs> it really does. Um, but uh, we, one of the main reasons we need to diversify our source of rubber is that because we're having it concentrated in one geographic location, first of all, you're getting a massive carbon footprint just moving the tyres around the world. That's not good. The second problem is that you're looking for expansion in this particular tropical area. And that means you're taking up rainforest and, and jungle and things like that, you're chopping down those trees. And so you're actually doing a lot of harm to the environment, creating these rubber plantations. It struck me um, reading the book that really, I mean, what, what really comes out of this is just, it's what engineers are capable of more than anything else. Like it, it doesn't have to be motorsports. It's, it's more ingenuity in principle, right? And you seem to be 
and it's a great thing like you're constantly surprised on, on a way by all these amazing things that it's possible to do <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean I, I'm not an engineer I, I'm you know I, I'm chemistry and, and physics are my areas and uh, you know I proper proper science and uh, not to say that engineering isn't proper science of course but very much fundamental science rather than applied and now we're moving into applied science and so to get to talk to engineers and just to see the incredible stuff that they're doing and constantly thinking and, and you're right uh, when we talk about ingenuity because engineering doesn't come from playing with engines it's from the latin ingenium it's from cleverness and you know smart thinking so engineers I, I i gained a whole new appreciation for another area of stem really i think it is um there's a very we are people in the engineering world are very aware that there is this problem that engineering has almost become so many things that no one knows what it is anymore you know even within my department for example uh we have healthcare engineers like becky we have uh automotive design people with that kind of history like tim we've got people who are designing new types of combustion for cleaner engines we've got me who's based in oceanographer we've got mark miodovnik who's a material scientist and all of this kind of sits in this this is this is just mechanical engineering and there's this and i think there is a real problem in the engineering world that if you say to on the street to someone you know what's an engineer they still picture someone in a boiler suit with a spanner yeah i think that's i think that's a problem that science has in general i think that i mean we've just spoken about disciplines you know physics and chemistry and biology and things like that even when you get to sub-discipline level there's just complete blurs but when you actually look at I, I know chemists that are doing physics. I know physicists that are doing chemistry. I know engineers that are doing you know, fundamental stuff and, and, and actually working with you know, mathematical modeling, all kinds of things. The whole concept of what is a scientist, no, we no longer fit into those neat boxes. We can no longer say this is chemistry, this is physics. And that, again, that sort of ties in with um, the first thing I looked at, which was my, my area that I came into was nuclear chemistry and nuclear physics, creating these elements that don't exist on earth. It doesn't fall into chemistry or physics. It, that those boxes just don't apply anymore. And I think that actually that's a really exciting thing. It's recognizing that there are so many. There's a, a diverse cast of people that have a diverse selection of skills. You know, as you mentioned, you've got oceanography, you've got mechanical engineering. You, well, that, that is mechanical engineering. But you've got sort of car engineering, and then you've got materials and making stuff, and then you've got healthcare engineering. We've, we've no longer got those solid definitions of what things are. And personally, I think that's a good thing. We should just be saying, you know, what, what can you do? How, what can you, how can you bring that skill to the fore? Uh, kind of reminds me of, of the fallacy of, of PhDs. And people think that if you've got a PhD in chemistry, you're an expert in all chemistry. But of course you're not. You have an expertise in what you have studied in your PhD, that specific area. And of course, you have, you'll have knowledge in other areas as well. But it's all about what can this each what can each individual bring to the wider party, and sort of defining things as physics and chemistry and mathematics, engineering, you know, keeping it separate, just doesn't apply anymore. I think. I think I would defend it as a as a way to teach things because what they are is different perspectives with different mm-hmm. frameworks, and you need you can't just like throw all the things into a bucket and say we're going to have a lesson on all the things in the bucket i think you do need you do need different systematic frameworks that introduce you but the point is i think that those subject titles are for learning they're not for applying it that's that might be how you learn but it's not necessarily the way the out what the outcome looks like they're they're a guideline almost they're sort of a shorthand for what you're doing 
And and you're right, we, we do, we, at, at certainly at GCSE level, we need to define you know, chemistry, biology and physics and things like that, um, because it gives someone a framework to learn. But ultimately, what they learn from that, they don't have to just focus on one subject. They can take bits from every single pot and mix it together into something that they're interested in. And that, because they're looking at things creatively, will undoubtedly affect other areas that they might not have considered. And again, it comes back to that collaboration. As long as we're bringing all those people together, we can make a huge difference. I think the collaboration is 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 a key thing because I I definitely see, generally not in my own department, I definitely see engineers who go, oh, I've just understood this. I'll go and solve that problem. And they haven't <laughs> because they they haven't actually talked to the people in that discipline. They solve a problem that doesn't exist. Not mentioning Elon Musk at this point, but you know that sort of attitude that I know best. I'm going it, to invent a solution and you are all going to want it. There is a reason that I probably don't mention Elon Musk in the book at all. And, uh, and you've, you've touched on exactly that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I get letters from uh, people who are saying, I've discovered that chemistry is entirely wrong. Um, I've come up with a new way of doing the periodic table because you've never looked at it from the point of view of a philosopher or something like that. And of course, they're talking to people and, and, you only have to look on Twitter and, you know, Jim Alcalini is fantastic at feedling all of these, you know, occasionally absolutely nonsense things, because of course people have looked at that. You know, we need to talk about it. We need to collaborate. Just, you cannot assume that you have come up with something brand new that no one else has considered. Those days are gone, that sort of, you know, that eureka moment. Occasionally they'll happen in smaller areas. We see things like CRISPR, for example, um, but almost, or, or graphene is another good example. But almost well, the graphene always. is an interesting one. We should pick up. We should mention that just because. Um, so you know, graphene Andre Garn back in two thousand and four. And what I've always struck me about that story is that what he didn't. He wasn't the first person to do that. He was just the first person to recognise it was significant. Like yeah. in undergraduate classes in the physics department in Cambridge, we took sellotape and peeled off graphene what yeah. we now know would have been graphene to study under an atomic microscope like that was a standard practical in 1998 um but everyone just went oh well it's just a sheet of graphite right no one identified that it was something different and the interesting thing there is that what he did was actually noticed that this completely standard thing wasn't what everyone thought it was absolutely so so as you as you say i mean even when he made the discovery he did this during his sort of his friday night experiments he called it and he was asking someone to polish down some graphite to a, to a fine sort of paste essentially uh, so we could look at it under the microscope and someone was visiting at the time and said well we use that as a standard for our calibrating our equipment our spectroscopy equipment um and so he literally got out a piece of graphite that was on a some, some scotch tape that was in the bin that had been thrown out by somebody else. And he put it under the microscope, looked at it, and he was the one that realized that essentially we had created one molecule thick chicken wire, um, which means that we can create all kinds of shapes and all kinds of, uh, it's got fantastic properties as well with thermal conductivity and electrical conductivity, but it's incredibly strong because we can bend it around, but like chicken wire, it's really hard to punch through. And so the genius moment there wasn't and the moment that won him the Nobel Prize uh, along with one of his colleagues wasn't the fact that he was the first person to do this of course you know I've, I did it I, th I think as well in somewhere I can't remember where but I, I remember distinctly doing that thinking wait a minute I was doing something that won the Nobel Prize his genius was was spotting the connection making that that leap and and that's really where we're seeing the uh, the benefits 
Well, all the science and engineering are all tied together. And I think uh, the book tells these stories. And I think it genuinely is of interest, not just to the motorsports fans, but to the rest of us as well. Um, so, yes, I, th I think we're I think we're on video for some of this. So I'm going to hold the book up. It's called Racing Green uh, by Kit Chapman. Um, Kit, thank you very much for speaking to us. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Um, and Shambles fans, do support Shambles on Patreon if you can. Look at the website. We have actually got live events coming up again now. We, we haven't got to say that for a while, but there are some. So come along if you can. Um, yep, yeah, and thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for listening. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Kit's book is out now. Go and check that out. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Cosmic Shambles. Don't forget to like, subscribe, rate five stars, all that business to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and wherever else you listen. We'll be back soon with another new episode. Take care and stay safe. Bye for now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.